I suppose all of us at some time or another have wondered what would life have been like had things been different, if we had been born into different circumstances. For example, we might think, what would it have been like if we never had to worry about money? What would it have been like if we would have received more uh, encouragement from our parents? What would it have been like if we'd gone into a different line of work? Wondering about such things has fueled many storytellers with ideas for their work. For example, Charles Dickens, in his classic novel, Great Expectations, tells the story of an ordinary boy growing up in poor circumstances. His future seems to hold nothing but hard knocks and hard work. And then there comes an unexpected turn. Out of nowhere, he comes into a large sum of money, and with it comes position and status and opportunity. A life that was destined to be quite ordinary is exchanged for a life of great promise. And this young man has to figure out just what will this new life mean for him. A little more recently, there was a movie some years ago about a couple of teenagers that thought they were living rather ordinary, not unusual lives, quite usual lives. And then all of a sudden they stumble upon the fact that their parents, which seemed to be so ordinary and dull and boring, were in fact international spies with an exciting life of intrigue and danger. The children only learned the secret about their parents when their parents got into some trouble. And suddenly these two children exchanged their ordinary life for a life of excitement and high-tech gadgets and things that they had no idea that they would be falling into. Now we get to the book of Revelations. We get a glimpse of a new reality that God has in mind for all of us. In fact, all of creation. We find that the life we already know is to be exchanged for something altogether better. And now you and I have to figure out what this new future means and how it shapes the way we live our life today. Now, when we come to the final two chapters in the book of Revelation, we're also coming to the final chapters of the whole Bible. And after many chapters in the book of Revelation filled with vivid imagery and symbols and coded language, we find it's kind of tough going. It's difficult to understand and follow and make sense of. But when we get to these last two chapters, we hear about a new heaven and a new earth that God will provide. John receives a vision from God of this new Jerusalem descending from on high to be present here upon the earth. And this city is filled with God's presence. That's the most distinguishing characteristic, a city where God and human beings are directly in contact with each other. God is at home with us, and the faithful have a place, all the faithful have a place in this holy city. All can come to encounter God. We're told that there are no temples in this city, for there's no need to have a place set aside for worship and communing with God, because wherever you are, there is God, and God is in contact. In chapter 21, John tells us that day, that a day will come when God will dwell with humanity and God will wipe away every tear and death will be no more and mourning and crying and pain will be no more for these things have passed away. We looked together at that last Sunday. Then we get to chapter 22, which we heard some today. And John goes on to tell us in this vision 
about how God will provide so much more. The holy city of Jerusalem will not be like the old one that was subject to decay, but will be a new one. And John tells us that he sees no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And all nations will walk by its light. What a wonderful image. We're told that the river of of the water of life flows through this city. It flows from the throne of God and provides life for all. And in that day, men and women and children will be able to see God face to face as no one has ever done so before. Not Moses, not David, not even Abraham and Eve, but we might see God face to face and commune with God, and God be with us. This is possible because of what, is, what God has accomplished on that first Easter morning many years ago. You see, Easter changed the world, and it's changed us also. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we now share in the riches and the wonders of God. We know how the future will turn out, and that knowledge changes how we live in the present moment. We can behave differently differently because we know what lies ahead. We know who holds the future. Christ was raised from the dead and given new life, and that means that he opens up the path for others to follow. We live in him, and he lives in us. And we're not the same as we were before. Easter changes everything. Now, that doesn't mean that everything right now is the way God wants it to be. Even though the promises of God are trustworthy and true, the future is still somewhat out of our reach. It's not yet arrived. We still have some waiting to do. We know how history will turn out in the end, but in the meantime, we will still meet with disappointment and difficulties and setbacks. And for now, we find ourselves living in a sort of tension between what's present in this moment and what's still yet to come. We can live in the joy of what God has done and what God will do, but we'll also still have times when we're smarting from the troubles and sorrows that continue to come our way. I guess you could say we live in the tension between Good Friday sorrow and Easter Sunday joy. We can live with hope in God, yet our hope doesn't remove us entirely from the troubles that are still found in this world. Now, sometimes the church has failed to admit this tension, this connection between both the present moment and what God has yet to come. And I suppose if we don't recognize the tension, we can fall prey to falling on one side or the other that misses the entirety of the situation. I suppose at times, if we are too positive, we can come across with glib optimism and kind of missing out on the things that are also a part of the world in which we live. For instance, there are some who are convinced that God is entirely in control, that whatever happens, God is the one who made it happen, or at least allows it to happen. Some will say, well, this is God's will. God wants these things to happen. And the words sound pious, and they're meant to be helpful, but you know such thoughts are not the faith that we find in the Bible. Such words forget, for example, how Abraham interceded with God on behalf of others when God was angry. God listened to Abraham's plea, 
and God decided to change God's mind and show mercy rather than anger. If we think everything is God's will, we might forget, for example, the words of the psalmist who cried out to God, pleading that the Lord bring an end to the suffering and injustice of the world. How long, O Lord, the psalmist pleaded, how long will this go on? Will you reject us forever? This is the heartfelt cries of someone who is calling God to act in a different way. Genuine faith recognizes that there are places and times when God's will is not accomplished. God's will is thwarted. God does not get God's own way. God's mercy and compassion and caring can be blocked. In those places, the faithful can pray together, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In such places, we can ask that God's promised future might come sooner rather than later. And we can also do our part to make the world a better place and to bring less unfortunate situations. When we put the blame on God for the sorrow and the hurt that we find in this world, we can forget the model of faithfulness that was found in Job. Remember Job? He was a great model of faithfulness. When all sorts of troubles came upon Job, he endured. And when his friends told him to accept all the bad that came, the way, came his way, Job refused. Instead, Job had the nerve to complain and argue with God when trouble came along. Job showed that crying out to God may actually be more acceptable than humble resignation, unquestioning acceptance, or empty piety. You know, Job was willing to be fully honest with God about his hurts and disappointments, and it turned out that God was perfectly willing to listen to all that was on Job's heart. The sorrow, the complaints, the anger, all the negative stuff. God was perfectly willing to let Job be fully honest. And so the lesson is that when we face some heartbreaking situations and times of sorrow, we can be fully honest with God also. God does not look upon the tremendous suffering caused by hurricanes and wildfires, deaths from overdose and the recent tornadoes in the Great Plains. God doesn't ignore those things or even send those things. Certainly God does not ignore our pain. Instead, God's heart is broken as our hearts are broken. God shares in our sorrow. And then, importantly, God goes on to offer us a promise of a better world still to come. When we experience heartbreak and sorrow, God offers us the promise of hope and healing, peace and wholeness. If not to come immediately, it will still come in days that are ahead. That's what Easter is all about. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ truly means for all of us. You see, Easter is not simply the story about the death and restoration of life of one person in history long ago. And Easter is not just the promise that you and I may one day get to live with God in heaven. What Easter is about is really a cosmic project that God has taken on to bring all of the world and all persons into a new relationship with each other and with God. God is bringing about a new order and set us free from the brokenness and the sorrow of the old order. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending Jesus Christ into the world merely to point an accusing finger or tell the world how bad it already is, but Christ came into the world to put the world right again. 
Through the cross, God in Christ is bringing a heavenly kingdom closer to us all. Pain, death, sorrow, these things are not from God. They're not what God intends for us. God has determined such things must come to an end, and it's precisely for this reason that Jesus died and was raised to new life. Now, as we consider our own places of disappointment and hardship and sorrow, there's at least two things that we might keep in mind to encourage us. First, we need to keep in mind what God's plan is in the end. Our faith and trust is on the winning side. We know the final outcome. We may suffer now, but in the end our tears will be wiped away, and those who mourn shall be comforted. And God will give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise in exchange for the burdens we have carried. You know, when you're making a long journey in the car or on a plane, the traveling can seem to go on and on forever. How long is this trip going to take? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But you know, when you think about the final destination and how good it will be when you finally arrive there and you focus on the end of the journey, then maybe you can put up with the discomfort and the, the length of the journey as you are on that way. If you keep in mind the final destination, you go through the time it takes to get there. So that's a first word. Keep in mind the destination. Keep your eyes on the prize, and maybe that will help us to get through the time of difficulty. But a second thing is God can strengthen our faith even as we undergo suffering and hardship. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk and writer, once said that if we merely accept suffering, suffering does nothing for our souls except perhaps to harden them. The very essence of Christianity is to face suffering and death, not because they have meaning in themselves, but because the resurrection of Jesus has robbed them of their meaning. The resurrection has robbed suffering and death of their meaning for us. We can say that God caused such and such to happen or intended us to do us harm. We can't say such things. No loving parent ever wants to see their child in pain, and the same goes for God. God doesn't want us to go through pain. But in faith, that we, we can say that even in the suffering we face, God loves us still and stands with us. We can trust God's promises that even as we suffer, God might use that suffering in some redemptive and meaningful way. Madeline Lengel, the novelist, writes about an experience that she had with an old dear friend. She and the friend were having lunch together after a long time about uh, being apart, and they had lots of catching up to do as they were in conversation. They shared each what had happened to them over the years since they had last gotten together. They talked about one going through a divorce and another having disappointments over professional life and some chronic health issues and several lengthy stays in the hospital. Turns out life had not been easy for either one of these two friends. But after some sharing and some tears, the friend said to the author, you seem to be a happy person, don't you? Well, Madeline Lengo was a little surprised by the question, but she was even more surprised by the response that came to it from her herself. She had lots of reasons to be miserable, but she found her answer to be genuine and true enough, even though it pointed in a, in a surprising direc- direction. She said, yes, I am happy. 
Later on, in remembering this exchange with her friend, the author went on to write, This was ten years ago, but the answer is still the same. The better word, of course, is not happy, but joy. Because joy doesn't have, to do with, doesn't have anything to do with pain, physical or spiritual. I have been wholly in joy when I have been in pain. Childbirth is an obvious example. Joy is what makes the pain bearable and in the end creative rather than destructive. Friends, it's our faith in God that gives us the ability to know such joy, even though there's ample reason to know sorrow and pain as well. There is a deep, deep joy that comes from our encounter with the one who suffered for our sake, who opened the gates of paradise that we might enter in, not just when this life is over, but even here and now as we put our trust in Christ. Well, that's the message for today. As a church, we're coming to the end of this season we call Easter, the big Sunday and the 50 days that follow after. The good news is that Easter is not a single day on the calendar or even a season in the church year. Rather, the good news is that this is a reality that can shape every single day we live in Christ and Christ lives in us. Certainly we'll face disappointments, times of sorrow and pain, but as followers of Jesus Christ, we have great expectations. We have a future that shapes how we live even today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection and a promise of an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Let this be our vision, now and forever. Amen.